The FTC has proposed a new rule under ever-expanding Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act that would significantly ban non-compete agreements between employers and workers. If adopted, the proposed rule would supersede inconsistent state laws and also require employers to rescind certain existing non-compete clauses no later than 180 days after publication of the adopted rule. The FTC also recently filed enforcement actions against three companies and multiple executives for imposing non-compete restrictions on workers and obtained voluntary consent decrees, but there was no judicial review. The proposed rule contains a limited exception for certain seller non-competes used in mergers and acquisitions, but still curtails buyers' protections in the deal context. I'm Randall Rubenking, and you are listening to Baker Hosts. On today's episode, Carl Hittinger, Antitrust and Competition Practice National Team Leader, Joyce Ackerbaum-Cox, Co-Leader of Baker Hostetler's Non-Compete and Trade Secrets Practice Team, Margaret Isa Butler, a partner on the Mergers and Acquisitions Team, Brian Harris, co-leader of the firm's Employment and Deal Team, and Tyson Harold, counsel on the Antitrust and Competition Team, discuss what businesses in all industries, as well as private equity and M&A professionals, need to know about these developments. Let's listen in. Welcome. This is uh, Baker Hosteller's webinar on FTC Seeks the Ban non compete restrictions and employment contracts. I thank you all for joining us. Uh, my name is Carl Hittinger. I'm a partner in Baker Hostetler's DC and Philadelphia office, and I'm also the team leader of Baker Hostetler's antitrust and competition national practice. I'd like you to introduce you to some of our panelists today. We'll be talking about various aspects of how this non-compete may impact you if it goes forward. Uh, first, we have Joyce Ackerbaum-Cox, who's a partner in our Landau office, and she is co-leader of Baker Hostetler's non-compete and trade secrets practice team. Also joining us is Margaret Isa Butler, who's a partner in our New York office, and she handles mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, and private equity issues in that office and nationwide as well. Uh, also joining us is Brian Harris. Brian's a partner in our Atlanta office, and he is co-leader of the firm's employment deal team. And finally, we have Tyson Harold, who is a counsel for the firm. He's in our Philadelphia office and he specializes in antitrust uh, issues. With that, I wanna introduce our first uh, uh, panelist who's gonna talk about the background on this movement by the FTC, the context of it. And uh, you know, I was thinking that this presentation is really timely because I'm sure all of you saw this State of the Union addressed by our president. Uh, he mentioned specifically antitrust, and he talked about antitrust issues. This is the first time a, a, a president has spoken in the State of Union address about antitrust issues since 1979. So this is forefront, important things for you to know about, and we'll see if we can help you today in our presentations. Tyson, you want to start? Thank you, Carl. Uh, so as you all know, uh, the FTC recently proposed a rule that would make it a, an unfair method of competition under Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act for businesses to have workers sign non-competes. Uh, if passed, the proposed rule would supersede, quote, inconsistent state laws, which means laws that are less restrictive of non-competes than the FTC's proposed rule. Because many states allow reasonable non-competes currently, 
which usually means those that are limited by geographic scope and time frame. The rule proposes a, a monumental shift in the way non-competes are treated in this country. Um, the reasonableness standard that governs non-competes under many state laws would be supplanted by FTC review under what amounts to a bright line rule. As background, uh, the FTC's proposal follows a June 2021 executive order uh, by the president instructing the FTC to exercise the FTC's statutory rulemaking authority under the Federal Trade Commission Act to curtail the unfair use of non-competes and other clauses or agreements that may unfairly uh, limit worker mobility. So there does seem to be some support there from the current administration. Um, the FTC rule is proposed under uh, 15 USC section 46G, uh, which is rather obscure rule, allowing the commission to make rules and regulations to carry out the purpose of the Trade Commission Act, Federal Trade Commission Act. Uh, it provides an abbreviated notice and comment period compared to other FTC uh, regulatory uh, processes. So there's a 60-day public comment period, um, which uh, ends on March 20th, uh, after which the FTC may choose to pass the rule as proposed or to amend it. Uh, and then the law would take effect 180 days after publication of the final rule. So the earliest we're looking at is probably the fall of 2023. Uh, there is a chance the FTC could voluntarily extend the comment period. Uh, there's already been a request to do that. One request asked for an additional 60 days. Um, it, you know, it's uncertain whether the FTC will agree to that or not. I suppose it depends in part on the comments they receive. Um, they have received to date and continue to receive. Uh, one final thing, the FTC is going to hold a public forum on February 26th from 12 noon to 3 a.m. Eastern time. 3 p.m. Eastern time, uh, which would be live streamed. You can find a link to that under the press release pages page on the FTC's uh, website. Carl? Let me ask you a question, Tyson. How many comments have been received so far that you know from, to the FTC on this new rule? A lot. As of uh, 11.59 yesterday, there have been over 10,000 comments, and we were not even halfway through the comment period. So, Okay. Um, stay tuned. I have not read all of them. All right. <laughs> Uh, let's move to uh, the labor and employment side of this, which has a major impact, obviously. And for that, I'll, I'll turn it over to uh, Joyce and Brian. Thank you so much, Carl, as well as Tyson. Um, and you uh, referenced exactly what I was going to say, Carl, with respect to the State of the Union. If you watched that, you were, uh, may have been, I was a little bit surprised the way that uh, President Biden referenced that as well. But as you notice, he also said 30 million people in the United States are bound by non-compete agreements. Um, and that's also directly in the text of the proposed FTC rule. So the big question that we're getting from clients and that people wanna know is if, if it's passed, what will it mean? Who will it cover? What is gonna be permitted and what is prohibited? So um, we're gonna talk about that a little bit. The new rule defines non-compete clause in a way that you would expect it. It's quote, a contractual term between an employer and a worker that prevents the worker from seeking or accepting employment with a person or operating a business after the conclusion of the worker's employment with the employer. Now, what strikes all of us uh, as practitioners in this area is the use of the word worker. It does not use the word employee. And obviously the word worker is far broader. So of course it covers employees in the traditional employee-employee relationship, but it also goes on to define worker to include independent contractors, externs, interns, volunteers, apprentices, and sole proprietors. 
Um, it does exclude the franchisee when you are in a franchisee franchisor relationship, although those relationships will continue to be looked at under the traditional antitrust rules, but it, it does not go as to far, it, it does not apply if you have employees of a franchisee that would still be covered by the ban. So in this definition, if you will, it's extraordinarily broad. It doesn't matter if the individual is paid or unpaid. Uh, if they're a worker, they're going to be covered. So it's a very broad brush that the FTC is painting with. Moving on, um, you know, this rule provides what we call a functional test or what is proposed in the rule as a quote unquote functional test. And that is really, I think, going to be the crux of what a lot of employment lawyers are going to be looking at to see whether specific terms in a contract actually qualify as a non-compete non clause, because it's a very uh, broad, I would say, definition. So the functional test is whether the contractual term has the quote, effect of prohibiting the worker from seeking or accepting employment with a person or operating a business after the conclusion of the worker's employment with the employer. And if it has this quote unquote effect, they're gonna consider it a de facto non-compete clause. Now, the rule gives a few examples, um, but even under one of the examples, um, you know, it, it immediately jumps out because the example is of an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. And the example says that if an NDA that is so broad that it effectively precludes the worker from working in the same field after the conclusion of his or her employment, that's gonna be considered a de facto non-compete. Uh, the second example that the FTC proposed rule talks about is an agreement between the employer and the worker that would require the worker to repay to the employer or to the third party who provided the training costs, the training, excuse me, to reimburse those costs if the worker's employment ends within a specified time period where the payment is not reasonably related to the specific costs that the employer incurred for training the worker. So it only gives these two examples, um, but when you read further on into the rule um, and into some of the comments uh, and, and language surrounding this, general NDAs and non-solicitation agreements should, and I'm gonna underline that and put it in caps and bold, should not be covered. Um, but under the broad brush that they're painting with, there's a lot of leeway. And if those clauses impermissibly, in the FTC's opinion, find or prevent an employee from seeking other employment, they may very well be considered de facto non-competes. So um, we know a lot of you have questions about, you know, what does this do to my NDAs and my non-solicitations and how do we protect further things. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later and give you our thoughts on that. But for now, I'm gonna turn it over to my partner, Brian, who's gonna talk about um, what the businesses are gonna be required to do if this rule does go into effect. Thank you, Joyce. Um, with, um, with that broad definition of, of non-compete clauses uh, in mind, um, one of the principal requirements of this rule, if it passes or if it, it becomes final in its current form, would require all employers who've entered into these non-compete clauses with employees to now rescind those existing 
uh, non-compete clauses. So not only can you not enter into them going forward, you have to rescind the ones that you've already entered into, presumably already given valuable consideration for. Um, but regardless of how long they've been in place, regardless of the consideration provided, they would have to be rescinded under the rule. Uh, the deadline for that rescission is um, uh, the effective date of the rule, which is 180 days after it be, it, the final rule is published. Um, and then once you've rescinded, you have to provide notice to your employees uh, and not just your existing employees, but your former employees who are still subject to these non-compete provisions um, that they have been uh, rescinded. And you have to do that within 45 days um, of the rescission date. So, uh, and if you do provide that notice, um, you will be deemed to have complied with the rescission requirement itself. So you don't have to do anything really fancy to actually rescind the contract other than provide notice to the employee that it is in fact rescinded. Um, the requirement to notify former employees um, does apply to those whose contact information is readily available, whatever that um, ends up meaning. Um, and whether there's interpretation as to whether it should be readily available, even if you claim that it isn't, um, I would suggest that presumably if you have a former employee who is still subject to um, a non-compete clause that is currently in force and effect, you probably would be presumed to know how to contact or how to find that employee or at least have a last known address still in your file. Um, so you're going to have to follow that, that notice requirement. Um, there's a whole bunch of controversial stuff in this rule. This is probably one of the most um, controversial in terms of um, telling folks that they have to rescind um, contracts retro retroactively, uh, again, that have been supported by consideration and may have been in effect, in effect for years, would seem to run contrary um, to the law in several ways, um, but, um, but we can discuss that more in depth later. Uh, the uh, rule does provide a sample notice um, that if you use that notice, um, you will, will um, of course, uh, be presumed to have complied uh, with the rule. Uh, I would suggest that the problem with that notice, which says in like three different ways, um, you are no longer subject to a non-compete clause, you can go work for a competitor, you can start a competing business, you can do all of these wonderful competitive things. Um, does probably not adequately cover the fact that these employees may be covered by other covenants that subject to Joyce's commentary from earlier about how broadly non-compete is defined should still stay in effect. Um, so I would suggest that employers, if they are complying with this notice requirement, and if it does become final, that notices include a reminder that while your non-compete is rescinded, you still can't take our confidential information and trade secrets in violation of, a, of an NDA. You still can't solicit customers that you had material contact with in violation of a non-solicit uh, and so forth and so on. Um, so with that, I will um, turn it back to um, Carl and, and Margaret. Thanks, Joyce and Brian. That was very, very helpful. And uh, again, if you have questions for them on these issues, please pull them up in your Q&A and I'll ask them in about a half an hour. Um, before I turn it over to Margaret, I want to talk about some of the antitrust issues that may be swirling through your minds about what this means 
And before I get to that, I want to talk about the context litigation-wise of what this means. You might have read, might have seen that when they proposed this rule, they also decided, the FTC decided to bring three cases uh, against companies who had non-competes. Uh, in all three cases, uh, the parties entered into voluntary consent decrees, so there was no judicial resolution of these issues. The fact that cases were brought just means cases were brought. Nobody won. It was just a resolution of them to a voluntary consent decree. So if you would look at that, if you look at these cases, uh, if you want some guidance on what uh, gets the FTC excited about non-competes, these are three cases where they got excited and, and brought these cases. Now, the first case uh, was a situation where the janitors for a particular company were bound by non-competes. Uh, and uh, the non-competes uh, for, were for two years, 100 miles, which is which is typical, but they also had a hefty $100,000 liquidated damages uh, penalty at the end if uh, there was any violation of them. Uh, so can't get in the mind of the FTC as to why they found that offensive or unfair, uh, but they brought a case over that. Uh, the other two cases were, were more nondescript. They were cases involving you know, one-year non-competes, two-year non-competes which are typical, as all of us will tell you in the industry. They have passed antitrust muster many times over the past 100 years. Um, so the FTC is, is going into new territory. Now, who can bring these cases? Even if the rule is passed, the only party that can bring cases under the rule is the FTC. And the FTC is using Section 5, as Tyson said, of the FTC Act to bring these cases. The Supreme Court has recently uh, hampered and limited the FTC to only seek injunctive relief for Section 5 violations. They cannot obtain damages, cannot obtain treble damages. So that's the uh, the method that would be used. There's no private right of action, even if the rules passed. Class actions can't be filed. Individual cases can't be filed, at least under the rule. The Sherman Act still survives, obviously. It has to. It's still law. Um, and the Sherman Act has been, you know, for the past 100 years, uh, quite a bit of, of uh, uh, litigation over what uh, non-competes can say and not say that could be in violation of the antitrust laws. Those cases can still be brought by the Department of Justice, by the FTC, by the state attorney generals, by private litigants, class action litigation. So that law still stands. And that law will still stand even if this rule passes. If the rule passes, what does that mean in terms of litigation? All it means is the FTC can use the rule to bring litigation. They can't get injunctive relief without a court agreeing to it. So they're going to convince a judge or judges who have been reviewing these non-competes under the Sherman Act for over 100 years using a rule of reason and a much lower, lesser, less stringent standard that is being imposed with this rule and convince those judges that they, the FTC, are right and that they have the power to do this. Questions already come up about, is there a legal basis for someone to challenge the FTC? Absolutely, plenty of legal basis. First off, the Supreme Court made it quite clear recently in West Virginia versus EPA that agencies are not you know, given the power to just on their own deal with major questions that Congress hasn't authorized them to deal with. So that's first and foremost. Second issue is this rule says we're gonna deal with inconsistent state laws. Hold it, that's state laws passed by states uh, there may be issues involving federalism, commerce, other things that could be challenged on that as well. Plus the fact it could be a major challenge as to whether the FTC even has the power to, to do this under Section 5. 
There's never been any litigation clearly defining what the power of the FTC is under Section 5. So that's going to be, first and foremost, a challenge. So stay tuned. A lot remains to, to happen, even if the rule passes in terms of litigation and whether there's going to be an antitrust violation. And with that, I want to turn it over to Margaret to talk about some of the mergers and the deal issues and equity issues that may come up if this rule goes through. Margaret. Thanks, Carl. Um, so how are we going to address this uh, from a deal perspective where we normally have our employment colleagues uh, review all the documentation and put in additional documentation in place to protect the value of the business being purchased? Um, well, I think there's generally good news on the deal side. Um, the rule is very much focused on unfair methods of competition because that's what the FTC is trying to address. And even though the exception that they included uh, for now is narrow, even in the M&A context, they do admit that the public policy considerations just aren't as clear uh, in the M&A context. It's very difficult to say that the seller of a business uh, is being exploited or coerced uh, into signing a document that, that is not in their best interest. So, um, so with that, I think we will continue to call our employment uh, council partners um, and make sure that they put in place all the best sorts of belts and suspenders methods of addressing um, how to protect the value of the business. Um, one thing is there is an exception, even in the proposed rule, uh, which says that the rule does not cover a non-compete entered uh, by a person who is selling a business entity or otherwise disposing of all of that person's ownership interest in the business entity or selling substantially all the assets, um, where the person restricted by the non-compete compete clause is a quote, substantial owner or member or partner in that business. Um, and the proposed rule says, we're going to use 25% as the threshold for substantial. Um, and already we can see the, the practical problems with that. Um, even in a kind of a late stage venture company, people who are key to the business could be diluted below 25%. And so those folks aren't covered by the exception. Um, but they do say specifically that in the final rule, they could decide to set this percentage at a different level. And they say, for instance, 50% or 10%. Um, but, but they make clear that what they're, what they're interested in covering here is that you can't have an employee sell back like one share of stock and say, oh, they, they fit into this exception now. Um, so th there's probably room here still in the final rule, um, especially if people provide smart comments uh, during the comment period. Uh, for this threshold to be set um, at a more realistic level. And then there is doing what we always do, right? Well, you, you can't have a post-employment non-compete, but you can have a garden leave period during which people remain employees and, and therefore they're subject uh, to other rules. Uh, and senior folks in a deal would have fiduciary duties. And um, as my colleagues mentioned, uh, restrictive covenants, that do not function as de facto non-competes are still allowed. And the proposed rule says that, uh, in fact, the reason they feel okay with this rule is because there are less restrictive means um, of employees, employers accomplishing some of their goals. So from a deal perspective, I would say 
the sky is not falling. Just make sure you work closely with council to put in place all the other protections that we already put in place. Um, just be very cognizant of that. Um, for the allowed non-competes, make sure they are compliant uh, with current law, which would still apply. That would not seem to be preempted. Um, and, and be careful to do that because right now if you have an overreaching non-compete that can be struck and that that's already the case. Um, so we can still help in the MA context. Very good. Thank you, Morgan. Well, we have a lot of questions and I'm going to go through them and uh, hopefully this will cover things you're thinking. Please continue to submit questions. Um, let me start with a uh, question, what's behind this? Why is the FDC doing this? What's prompting this? What are they trying to fix? Um, let, me, let me throw that to Joyce. I think Joyce has kind of answered that based on what the president's already said uh, is, 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 is that issue here and uh, what the government's trying to do. Joyce. Sure, and, and Biden campaigned on this. We knew that this was coming. This is a big piece of his um, presidency. And when you look at the overview of the rule, it says, and I'm going to quote it, because non-compete clauses prevent workers from leaving jobs and decrease competition for workers, they lower wages for both workers who are subject to them as well as workers who are not. Non-compete clauses also prevent new businesses from forming, stifling entrepreneurship, and prevent novel, <clears throat> excuse me, novel innovation, which would otherwise occur when workers are able to broadly share their ideas. So, you know, the, the general consensus is it you know, depresses competition and innovation, all these other things. Um, you know, I think what practitioners were most surprised to see when this rule came out um, is that there wasn't, there weren't more exceptions listed. You know, Margaret covered the 25% threshold for sale of a business. Um, generally, in a non-compete context, we were able to, we are able to get a longer non-compete for the seller of business. But um, as all, a lot of the state laws have been passing within the last few years, um, they've put limits on non-competes maybe for certain wage earners or certain positions, people earning, you know, below the whatever a threshold is. There's nothing like this in this rule. It's a non-compete in any way, shape, or form. And there's no exceptions for C-suite or high level executives or anything like that where those non-competes would continue to be permissible. So um, I think, you know, I understand, you know, most of the time, most of the clients that come to us, they're not seeking to prevent the janitors from going to a competitor or the, as you know, President Biden has said, the burger flippers. We're generally concerned with the people who are, uh, you know, holding the confidential information, the trade secrets, the key client relationships, et cetera. And there's not, there doesn't seem to be a great amount of protection or certainly not any carve out from an exception standpoint of non-competes applying to them. Next question, uh, this will be for Brian, who already touched on this. Uh, if this rule is passed, uh, as you say, uh, people would have to notify former employees about uh, the rule change. Uh, how far back would they have to go? If they've had non-competes for the past 50 years, would they need to go back 50 years? How's that going to work? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to key off of what's actually in effect. In other words, um, for most non-competes that are put in place um, under current state law, in any state that permits it, your maximum time period, if it's outside the sale of business context, is going to be about two years. Um, so 
most former employees who've been gone for more than two years, even if they signed a non-compete, are no longer going to be subject to that non-compete anyway. Um, so um, you're probably looking at that period of time where anybody who's subject to it, uh, to a non-compete that's still in force, you would have to notify and say that that non-compete is no longer in force. Um, it's been rescinded and you are free to go work for a competitor. Uh, so that's that's the range you're you're talking about. Okay. Uh, next question is a is a litigation question. I'll, I'll I'll field this one. What impact will this have on pending lawsuits seeking damages for non-compete? Um, so there's pending cases out there. People are suing under non-compete, seeking damages. I guess the thrust of this question is: if the rule is passed, whatever form, uh, will that be the law that a judge has to apply? in a pending case or in a future case? The answer is no, not generally. Uh, it, it'll apply in any case brought by the FTC under the rule, then it would have to, as I said before, be litigated in a court to get a judge to issue an injunction based upon Section 5 in the Sherman Act, which are gonna be at odds. But if there's a pending case that's not been brought by the FTC, it's a private lawsuit between parties, it's pending now or brought in the future, then we go back to you know, uh, issues under contract law in individual states, go back to antitrust challenges, all going to be litigated in the same way. Now, will the rule or with, with the FEC's thinking have any sway with a judge? Well, federal judges, you know, look at federal law that impacts them. This rule does not impact them unless the FEC is before them with a case. So I don't know that that's going to have much of an impact. Again, they're going to look at the Sherman Act which they've been looking at for the past hundred and some years. Next question. Right, uh, before you move on, Carl, can I make just a follow-up observation to that? Um, I know that this um, attendee's question was limited to damages, but right. in the context, a lot of times when people are challenging non-competes or are being challenged, the question is to go after an injunction. And in that um, analysis of whether or not an injunction is appropriate, one of the uh, generally, again, it depends on uh, where you're located, but one of the threshold questions is whether the non-compete itself violates public policy. And we make that argument all the time, or we hear that argument made all the time, and it's the last prong in a long test. And generally, a lot of courts view it as a throwaway, right? One side says contracts should be upheld, and one side says, no, this violates public policy because it doesn't allow me to go work where I want to work. Um, and so it's not something that's focused on, but I can certainly see going forward that this will heavily be used, whether the person has standing, so to say, so to assert it as a separate cause of action uh, or whether it should be, you know, remains to be seen. But I think that it will be utilized as an argument that it violates public policy, um, that it violates what the FTC is trying to do and that the injunction should be um, prohibited and or the non-compete should be struck. Very good point. And, and of course, it gets back to the original question before, which is, what's the public policy? Who passed it? This is the FTC's policy. This is not Congress's policy. It's not even the White House's policy, because if it was the White House's policy, there'd be some legislation that would be proposed to deal with this, not a rulemaking thing. And that gets back to what the Supreme Court said in West Virginia, which is agencies are not supposed to be passing major doctrine rules. That's up to Congress. That's what the separation of powers is all about. So there's going to be a lot of litigation about that. And all these points are, are very well taken. So the next question I, I, is kind of a little broad in terms of what industries are really impacted by this rule. And 
this person's talking about the insurance industry or medical equipment sales. Can we talk a little bit, uh, Brian and, and Joyce, about what industries do you think this applies to every industry? Are there limitations on it? What do you think? Uh, well, the I mean, the way the rule is designed, there's it, it doesn't distinguish, um, and nobody is excluded. Um, so, you know, healthcare, technology, manufacturing, sales, retail, everything under the sun is included within the scope of the rule. Um, and non-competes are used in a lot of those industries on a regular basis. Um, uh, you know, they're used in healthcare constantly. They're used in technology constantly. Um, they're used obviously in, in sales and, and distribution constantly. Um, so I think it, I, I think it broadly impacts a, a whole number of, of industries. Um, you know, typically, you know, setting aside the senior level employees, which in almost every industry have some, you know, there, there, there's fairly common implementation of, of restrictions um, in industries that rely heavily on sales forces, for example, um, and, and where revenue is produced by salespeople. Um, there's an, there's an awful lot of use of non-competes in addition to non-solicitation, uh, and non-disclosure covenants to prevent your best salespeople from going next door and attracting all the business just merely by their presence next door, um, and to prevent the poaching of your talent by your biggest competitors. Um, so I, I see a, a huge impact, um, in, in industries that rely heavily on sales, for example, um, it, it just just for one example, but there are numerous ones, and it's hard to to narrow it to any particular industry. Okay. Carl, um, if I could just add something to that. Sure, go ahead, Tyson. Yeah, because the the rule derives from Section Five of the Federal Trade Commission Act, um, it would be limited to it would be limited from several industries that the FTC generally doesn't have jurisdiction over. So one that comes to mind is the banking industry. Um, I know there are others as well. But it's really going to, what industries it doesn't apply to is really going to be tied to the FTC's jurisdiction generally. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Section five has been used limited in certain industries in a limited way, and that will continue to apply. Um, next, let me throw this to Tyson, because uh, we've talked about this before. The rule as, as, as worded currently would deal with, in, with the, what the FTC calls inconsistent state laws. I guess inconsistent with their view of the law. Um, does that raise preemption issues constitutionally? Uh, sure, it absolutely does. Um, the The way the rule describes inconsistent is basically any state laws that are less restrictive, um, which is most states. There are some that are that that ban non competes um, generally. California, for example, and so it wouldn't be necessarily inconsistent with those laws. But yeah, it absolutely does. And there, you know, there's there's been a lot of questions recently about federal state interaction at the Supreme Court, and that's an area that you know is in flux and and may shift back more toward the state. So, you know, we'll have to see how that goes. But it's definitely something I can see being a challenge to this rule down the road. Okay, I want to Carl, if I can, just sure. sort of dovetail off that that thought um, that there are a number of states out there that that this FTC rule. Um, even though it's very broad and goes much further and it goes nationwide, is consistent with at least the approach in a handful of states and a growing number of states to, as Joyce was talking about earlier, limiting um, uh, non-competes. So, 
you know, for those um, who already do business in multiple states across the country, you're already having to navigate certain limitations on non-competes and certain um, workarounds as a result. Um, so whether or not the FTC rule becomes final, uh, it's still a consideration for multi-state employers um, uh, to keep an eye on because there are more and more states California has been a leader, but Oregon, Washington, Illinois, Massachusetts, uh, to name a few that have been passing legislation to further and further limit um, who can be subject to non-competes. Uh, and, and you can even, you can see it, and I'll, I'll say this just anecdotally, in litigating these cases, there are more and more judges who are questioning the circumstances under which non-competes are, are sought to be enforced even in states where they may be allowed. Um, so it's it's certainly something, um, you know, again, whether or not the rule becomes final, something that everybody needs to be thinking about in terms of strategically, you know, can you really take a blanket approach to implementing non-competes? Do you have to be limiting them? You certainly have to be considering those state law rules, regardless of what the FTC says. So just wanted to throw that out there. Okay. Let me throw in another antitrust point here. Uh, those of you who know antitrust law or exposed to it know that the Supreme Court over time has wrestled with these issues about what if states want to have tougher laws. For example, suppose they want to allow indirect purchasers to sue for price fixing, where federal law only says direct purchasers can sue. Well, they dealt with that issue in Illinois Brick many years ago and said, no, states can pass their own statutes allowing indirect purchaser lawsuits. And they did do that. And they recently dealt with you know, resale price maintenance issues where they said, well, maybe those aren't good ideas in federal law and therefore they can't be prohibited. doesn't mean that states can't prohibit them in some more restrictive way. And they allow that to happen. So it's difficult, obviously, for all of you as clients. How do I conduct business from nationwide where there's a federal law and there are state laws that may differ at Brian's point? And you have to wrestle with all those things. But we've been down that road before and we know where the Supreme Court comes out on it. So if the FTC, my, my opinion here, is trying to preempt state laws and saying, no, the federal law, we, the FTC, you know, are the arbiter of what's fair and, and non-compete clauses are view or unfair, even though states may disagree, that's going to be an interesting argument at the Supreme Court in light of all that precedent on the antitrust laws that, that I just mentioned. So there's a number of questions. I'll, I'll throw this to any one of you to answer as to how far is this going to go? Obviously, we're, we're reading tea leaves. but does this have an impact on non-solicitation agreements? Does it have an impact on uh, uh, you know, trade secret prohibitions, proprietary restrictions, client lists, those kinds of things where it's just non-competes? What do you all think? So I'll comment on it because I commented a little bit, but I know that um, Brian and others may have additional things that they want to add. I mean, this is what we're primarily concerned about, right, is, is how this de facto non-compete determination will be decided and by whom and how broad it's going to get. Because, right, we can understand, all right, you say you can't go work for a competitor. That's an easy one, right? There's the non-compete language. It's written down. It's pretty clear. But once you get into this very gray area about whether it has the quote unquote effect um, that I talked about in the presentation of, of basically preventing someone from going to a competitor or starting a business, that's an entirely different analysis and one that there's not a roadmap for. And given that the examples that are in the 
text of the proposed rule even talk about a very broad NDA, they use the word NDA, having this effect, um, that is concerning to me. I mean, they do say later on that it's not, it, it shouldn't, and it's, it's not intended to apply, uh, to the general non-solicitations and, and things like that, um, but we don't know. But obviously this is the, the focus, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for, for the practitioners, or at least from the labor and employment standpoint, and I'll allow Brian to comment is, what are we gonna do to protect our critical business assets going forward, right? What are the, right now, most of the, for practically all states that allow non-competes, the analysis is what legitimate business interests are we trying to protect? So what are we going to do to protect those legitimate business interests? Well, we're going to really have to put in place some robust um, NDAs that don't hopefully have the quote unquote effect, some specific, you know, non-solicitation agreements, but we're also going to have to, I mean, you don't have to have an agreement to protect trade secrets. There still are things like the Defend Trade Secrets Act, the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, and other, you know, state laws that are still going to protect things, but I think employers, clients, entities are going to have to pay a lot more attention. If something truly is a trade secret and this goes through, you're not going to be able to rely on the, the non-compete ban to prevent someone from going to a competitor. And as most people know, the analysis for trade secrets is a lot more in depth. You're gonna have to show um, efforts at maintaining secrecy and things like that, which becomes very difficult when you're dealing with a client list because the internet makes things so broadly available. So I think that we will see a shift. We will see an increase in focus in trade secret litigation, which seems to already have been the case given all these recent state laws over the last two, three years. Um, but we're going to need to have, or employers are going to need to kind of tighten up their internal policies with respect to how they are maintaining and keeping track of true trade secrets and other types of confidential information. And Brian, I don't know if you want to add to that. Uh, yeah, to, to add to a, a, a number of great things that, that Joyce uh, just talked about there, I think it, it's going to highlight the importance of um, how those other covenants are implemented and drafted, careful contract drafting, um, and you're going to get some help from existing case law, existing state law on this, because there are plenty of cases out there um, and even statutes in certain states that distinguish between what they mean by a non-compete and what they mean by a non-solicit. Um, and why not like, you know, for example, why a non-solicitive customers may be enforceable where a non-compete isn't and paying careful attention to those differences and what constitutes an enforceable non-solicit uh, is gonna be very, very important. Um, so you're in, and, and, you know, to, to help elaborate on what I was talking about earlier in the, in the sales example, um, you know, in the sales industry, obviously there's gonna be laser focus on the most important issue in sales, which is protecting customer relationships and using very robust non-solicits that follow the state law on this is what constitutes a permissible non-solicit that it's you know carefully limited to the clients that you actually dealt with while you were working for the employer, ones that you actually had um, that you were, you know, um, you receive payment as a result of business done with that customer or you managed or you dealt with them, those kind of um, uh, issues, careful contract drafting, um, making sure that you um, include those covenants in your contracts and pay attention to meeting 
what the state law standards are for those um, so that that you can point to the cases in the statutes and say, see, we're tracking exactly what the state has told us. Um, you know, despite what the FTC might think, you know, we, we've got a great argument that what we've included is exactly um, what is permitted under state law uh, and what sets these covenants apart from the non-competes that the FTC is talking about. Yeah, I just want to add one other comment to that. You know, when we draft non-compete uh, agreements, um, many times we do so to be very broad, sometimes vague in um, purpose, so that it is all-encompassing so we can use it depending on the circumstances that may arise when the employee leaves, because we don't always know that. And in many states, as you're aware, the courts can modify or blue pencil, and we rely on that, um, you know, or the 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 client said, rather go broad and let's let the court strike it down, right? Or let's let the court limit it. So based on what Brian said, which is a critical point, these very, very broad clauses, this language is is, is not going to fly uh, anymore. We're not going to be able to rely on um, these languages, even in the current kind of uh, context, if you will. So I think that that is um, very important for you to look at your existing um, contracts to see number one to make sure that they are complying with um, the applicable state law but number two just as a, a practical point of advice um, if you're not using or going after if you're an employer that has a bunch of non-competes make sure that they're properly being applied to the people that actually have the business interest you need to protect you know Carl mentioned the janitor or the burger flipper those are not who these agreements are designed for um, and it, it, it gives you a better argument going into, you know, the court that you don't have these from employer employees at the lowest level all the way up to the, the CEO. So if you have that right now where you've just got a very broad um, array of employees, you're enforcing it or requiring all employees to sign this, that's definitely something that you should pull back on, regardless of what the FTC does. Mm -hmm. Margaret, we have some questions for you. Um... I think I can summarize this a little bit. So you do a deal, you do a merger, you sell a company, part of the assets of that company, the value of that company, uh, are employees, obviously. Uh, Non-competes are often a part of the, not so much the deal necessarily, can be, I suppose, but they're part of the company. It's an asset you're buying. You're buying a company that has non-competes, that gives you more value, and you're paying for that. You may be paying a lot of money for that. So this rule goes through, gets passed in some form, all of a sudden, all of those non-competes that you thought were valuable are now in question, okay? How does that impact the deal that was made? What, where do you go forward with that if you're in that situation where now you say, hold it, now what do I do? That, what I bought isn't really worth what I thought it was worth. Yeah, well, presumably it'll impact price, right? I think that's why the FTC is a little confused maybe still on how it's going to handle things in the M&A context. And yes, whatever the default law is that applies to companies is it's just going to apply to that company so um so if we believe they're destroying the value of the company then then that will be worth less um in an m a transaction um i i think um you guys always put in place things that that help protect in any event right assignments of invention and so there are other less restrictive methods that we have of trying to protect the value of the company and then for the key employees, um, and that's often who we're concerned with uh, in an M&A transaction, 
Well, if they stay, they can't compete with you, right? So if they're still, for so long as they're still employed with you, they can't compete with you. Um, and, and so I think it'll be like everything else in a deal, kind of a sausage making process. And we'll put together the best package we can put of protections um, for deals to be able to happen. Yeah. Now here's a question that goes along with that. And, and, and Brian and Joyce jump in on this, which is talking about key employees. You know, key employee has a non-compete. The cases the FTC has brought so far, and the rule doesn't seem to address this issue, weren't cases where there was valuable consideration given for the non-compete. If somebody got a lot of money to sign a non-compete, the, the key executive, you know, is that good enough to pass muster under this rule? Will that survive, you know, litigation? Uh, or are we just talking about situations where you just impose it and there's no consideration given? What do you think? Well, I, I think the intent of the rule um, is to apply it regardless um, with such the narrow exception, which which really doesn't make sense to me uh, in terms of saying that, you know, the only people um, accepted from the rule are those who own 25% or more. You could have people who own, you know, 20% or getting, you know, double digit millions out of a, out of a transaction and saying that they can't be subject to it. Uh, one, uh, one issue I wanna make sure that we've clarified just in case anybody missed it is that um, this rule only applies to workers. So to the extent you're talking about somebody who's an owner of a business who's selling, who's not a service provider in that business, they would not be covered by this rule. So somebody owns 15% um, gets paid for their portion of the company, but they're not also um, an employee of the company, they could still be subject to a traditional uh, sale non-compete. Um, so this deals with workers. I, I do think that when you look at the rhetoric that is used in support of this rule and the examples that are given, especially by the politicians that are pushing for it, they're talking about workers who aren't at the highest levels. Um, I, I do think there's going to be a strong push and there's you're already seeing it in some of the comments and some of the discussion. Um, to talk about the senior most executives who typically would be the ones we're talking about in the deal context who might be asked to sign a, a broader non-compete because they own a portion of the company, maybe less than 25%, but still a substantial portion. Um, I would expect the FTC to at least strongly consider certain exemptions um, for that group, or at least I would hope so, um, because those folks are receiving substantial consideration um, and um, and should fairly be restricted in that context. In the absence of that, like Margaret said, you got to you know make sure that every other you know restriction that you put in is carefully tailored and included, um, and that you consider things like retention arrangements that um, you know to the extent that the buyer can stomach it, encourage those folks to stick around for a significant period of time. Um, to protect the interest uh, that's being purchased. I should also say the FTC has particularly requested comments on C-suite and high income individuals. So, um, you know, they wrote the rule like this, but they are seeking comments on that specifically, which suggests to me that they expect that to be uh, one of the main areas of disagreement and comment. So, uh, you know, we'll see how that plays out. They wrote the rule without that exception. Um, it's hard to believe they didn't know about that ahead of time. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But 
they seem to uh, understand that that's going to be a big area of pushback. And of course, it'll depend, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they split that hair. If they do decide to put in some sort of um, an exception or an exemption for a C-suite, we're going to have all sorts of arguments and litigation over what is title versus what is functional versus who does what. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting issue about consideration and we can list, you know, go through a list of horribles about the things that'll be litigated. But, you know, we oftentimes have employers that are giving, you um, employees or, or workers um, considerable consideration in particularly in states where uh, continued employment is not considered uh, consideration um, like the great state of Florida where I am but in other states they have to give considerable consideration or even if they don't have to they that ends up being part of the deal that's negotiated so you can see someone you know uh, an executive or an employee getting a very considerable, um, upfront chunk, a signing bonus is something that the employer would argue is, you know, consideration for signing the employment agreement or the, the and the non-compete is sometimes, you know, contained within that. So, you know, what if I'm not getting the benefit of my bargain? I want to go back and argue and see if there's a way for me to get that back. Um, I can see a host of litigation and whatnot coming out of that, out of that issue. Mm -hmm. A question for Tyson on the process here. Uh, there's a you know comment period. Uh, people have the ability to comment. What does that mean? What can people do if they're opposed to this? Apparently, ten thousand people have already commented. Is it something you submit to the FTC? Do you need to show up? Should you have people from your company be there to talk? How do you envision that process working? It's an it's an online submission, um, and and I've seen any range of comments. Um, I've seen them comment on the effects to your business. I've seen um, them very critical of the, the proposed rule, but um, you can do it online. There's also uh, the, um, the workshop that I mentioned the FTC is going to be holding. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine that there's still slots available, but um, the FTC did announce that um, it will allow people to speak at that forum on a first come first serve basis. I'm not sure if there's any kind of filtering process there, if the FTC is going to let anybody do it or they want to, you know, know what exactly they're going to comment on beforehand, but that's also another way. That's not the formal comment process, but the FTC is, at least it seems, opening the floor in a way that um, they're not with the normal comment period. So you could also do that. Okay. Number of questions about does this apply or would it apply for not-for-profit companies, employers? We all think. Yeah, there, there's no... Um... As far as I can see, and anybody on the panel can correct me, but I don't see any exception written into the rule um, based on nonprofit status. So um, at least as currently drafted, the intent is to cover um, all employers, whether for-profit or not-for-profit um, with the rule and not mm -hmm. distinguishing at all between the two. Okay, and another question about it covers workers, and Joyce has talked about that. Would it cover independent contractors, do you think? That's explicitly written into the proposed rule. It says independent contractors. So the answer to that is yes. But I have an interesting question, maybe for Carl and Tyson that might be able to, to answer. Um, what happens at the change of the administration? So if this rule passes under the current administration, the, the FTC rule, um, what would the next administration uh, maybe the same, maybe different. What would, what would they be able to do to the rule? Good question. And I can answer that. Um, this has happened before. I mean, Section 5 was, you know, passed way back in the uh, 1920s when uh, 
I like to tell this story. Uh, our founder, Newton Baker, was the Secretary of War under President Wilson. He was involved in the creation of the FTC, and the reason this section was passed was to give the FTC the power as an independent agency to stop companies from ripping off the government during the World War I. Uh, and Section 5 was broadly worded to cover unfair methods of competition. And uh, so it sat there for years. About 10 years ago, uh, the FTC looked at the rule again and said, you know what, this really should be used more often, and we need to come up with some procedures to do it and some policies on it. And they went through a vigorous debate on it, the current then commissioners, and passed a statement about it. It wasn't a rule, it was a statement, but it was close to a rule. Uh, new administration came in, threw that out the window. They didn't like that statement. And so they came up with this new statement, that, this rule plus a statement that goes along with it that talks about things that they want to prohibit and actions they want to take it. So to answer your question, Joyce, yes, the FDC is an independent body, which, of course, you know, is, is term limits and equally divided between Democrats and Republicans can change their mind and rescind rules and rescind policy statements going forward, depending on the, the administration. Um, you know, of course, while it's in effect, it still applies. And in the antitrust world, you know, each administration inherits the uh, the uh, cases of its of its predecessor, good or bad, and you can't drop a lawsuit. So if the lawsuit's been filed, that can't be easily withdrawn. I think that would be very troublesome to make somebody go through a lawsuit and then pull it away and say, oh, sorry, never mind. That's going to have some ramifications in court. Tyson, you want to add anything to that? Yeah. <clears throat> so um, as Carl mentioned, the, the FTC is divided um, between political parties. And what that usually means is the parties in power that's in power has a majority. It's three, two. So, you know, it's going to switch three to whatever party um, is in power. And so, yeah, what that means is that the next administration could theoretically decide they don't like the rule uh, and rescind it. And in fact, <clears throat> you did see um, this rule doesn't is not, you know, not not all the commissioners agree with it. There's a dissenting statement of Commissioner uh, Christine uh, Wilson, who's in the minority party part of the, <clears throat> the commission. And so I think what she's doing is kind of laying the groundwork for a lot of stuff that she says in the rule is probably what you would see in a changing administration rescinding the rule. So. Very good. So another question that's come up is the issue of um, um, does this apply to small businesses or just large businesses or any, is there any de minimis rules or any, you know, out for a company that's very small, but needs non-competes in order to survive. Any exception there? No, I mean, there's, um, I'll just jump in and say no. I mean, that's, you know, one of the striking things about this rule is just how broadly it's drafted and the lack of exceptions of any type um, that, are, that are drafted in there. Um, even though, as Tyson pointed out earlier, in certain cases, the FTC has recognized that folks might lobby for certain exceptions and has, and has welcomed comment on that. As of now, there is absolutely nothing in there um, that's helpful to, to small businesses, to nonprofits, um, you know, to any category of business that might you know, be looking for a, a little bit of um, assistance here. Um, there, it's just a broad rule that applies basically to everybody within the FTC's purview. Here's a question uh, using the word non-compete. Uh, there are non-competes, as, as we all know, that are not only in employment uh, agreements, they're also in other kinds of agreements. Uh, somebody's raised a question about, what about non-competes in client agreements that prohibit people staffed on a particular account from working with the client's competitors? 
could come up in it could come up in our profession or medical profession or other things. What do you think about the application of this rule to that situation? That may end up being more of a general antitrust agreement, right, between a business-to-business -business type of a, an issue, because if it's a, it, then it's outside of kind of mine and Brian's wheelhouse, and and more so in uh, Carl and Tyson's uh, wheelhouse in terms of, and I guess um, at the risk of saying all of the antitrust, you know, knowledge that I have, the rule of reason, right? <laughs> right. I'll let you guys talk about that, but. Uh, right. Uh, I think that would be the general uh, analysis if, if there's not a direct uh, employer-worker relationship. Yeah, let, let me answer my own question. Okay, at least the question of the audience. Uh, <laughs> the answer to that, yes, it, it does raise antitrust implications. And uh, in those situations where there's an, uh, a prohibition about dealing with competitors, uh, it is a rule of reason analysis under the Sherman Act. And some of the defenses that come into play there is that you are getting information which is proprietary, which is top secret, say pricing information or client information, right? Once you get that information, if you share that with a competitor, okay, yeah, you know, it may be a violation of the non-compete, but it's also a bigger violation of the antitrust laws. So perhaps it will be argued that you're a conduit, you know, for giving pricing information and client information to competitors and these non-competes prevent that from happening. Well, we made that argument before to the government, you know, and say, what you're suggesting will create more in a competitive conduct than allowing this provision or these, 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 this conduct to, to take place. So they're, they're not intended to be necessarily in a competitive, but they can have that effect. But those are the defenses that you can certainly raise. Okay, so uh, we're now at the top of the hour, uh, but I think we've covered generally all the subject areas that people have raised. We hope this has been helpful to you. Uh, if, obviously, if you have more questions or want some more detail on it, to please let us know. So, you know, we're not we're not going away on this. So we're, we're staying front and center. We are going to follow this very closely. Stay tuned. We will keep you in the loop. And we hope you had a, a good day with this. And we hope it's been helpful to you. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you, Carl, Joyce, Margaret, Brian, and Tyson. If you have any questions for our guests today, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit BakerLaw.com.